Well, good evening. What's up with you? All right, come on, yeah, I'm listening. Hey, can we do a little couple of giveaways before we get started tonight? Come on, I know. So I owe this one, right? I owe this if you were here last week. And then can, can we just acknowledge some courage? So uh, Chris, how about that worship set? So good, right? So, so, so Chris, you know, really felt like the Holy Spirit was just, you know, prompting him to open up the altars. And so we just so appreciate the way he leads us in worship week in and week out, awakening us to the presence of God. And, you know, old people like me are coming up here, right? Come grownups and, and, and maybe some people that aren't quite so old, not to throw you in, right? But, but you're older, right? Just you're older, right? So grown up. But, but then there were some teenagers. Come on, right? Right? So Jazz and Sayali coming up to the altar. So just rewarding some courage tonight. You can do better than that. Come on. So good. I saw them come up. I was like, Jesus, right? Not caring about what people think. Not worrying about whether they should come. Because some of you, you got stuck in that conversation. Did you not? Should I go? Should I not go? Well, if I go now, then they're going to be done with a song. I'm going to be the last one up there, right? You did it. How many of you, right? We're playing through that in your head, right? I see hands going up. You're like, well, what will people think? Well, maybe they'll, will they think that I'm really, when you feel the Holy Spirit drawing you into moments like that, you just got to step. You just got to step. You just got to come and kneel, whether or not you're the only person that comes, you have the encounter with God that he wants to, if he wants to meet you in a place and he's speaking to your heart. And so when I saw those teenagers come up, I thought they, they are leading us tonight. So good, so good, so good. Well, we are in this series, if you're visiting with us tonight uh, on discipleship, we've been talking about discipleship all year. Uh, we're gonna be in this series on discipleship for the rest of the year. We'll pull out of it a little bit for uh, the Discover City Life. So we'll talk uh, those couple of weeks uh, that uh, leading up to that about the, um, uh, just about the church and who we are, just to help you get connected uh, to city life. And, and then we'll jump back into the series, I think, at least through November. Maybe we'll do something different in Christmas. I'm praying about that, so we'll see. But if, if you've got some questions about just what we believe about discipleship, how we do discipleship, we have a website that's dedicated to that. It's called Let's Praxis, P-R-A-X-I-S, Let's Praxis. Uh, if you're, again, if you're newer to the church, we have a book that we'd like to give you. Uh, you can find somebody in a blue shirt after the service, and they'll give you one of those little green book, booklets uh, that will help you get connected to what we mean when we say, uh, let's practice this phrase that we used to challenge one another. It's based on just uh, four simple numbers, the one, the six, the 12, and the 24. The one speaks to the invitation that we're given to enter into this journey of discipleship. If I accept the one, then I have to obey the six. The six are the six foundational commands of Jesus. Jesus' teachings. I obey the six by walking in the 12, which are spiritual disciplines and pathways, and then I become the 24. Our whole model of discipleship is based on that. And so for the last few weeks, we've been talking about one of our pathways, and this pathway is, is prayer. And, and we're, we're exploring prayer through one of the most famous prayers in the Bible called the Lord's Prayer. We, we, we opened with Romans 8, 26 and 28, which taught us this, this cry that should be welling up inside of our heart that I trust God. And, and when that cry begins to well up inside of me, it becomes a filter. Sometimes we have filters in life, right, that are biases that aren't good, but then sometimes we have filters in this life that are good because they 
frame how we're supposed to understand certain people in certain situations. This, this filter of trust should be the way that we understand our relationship with God, and it most certainly should be the way that we understand the Lord's Prayer. In fact, I believe that the Lord's Prayer is best understood as 10 specific declarations of trust, 10 specific declarations of trust. And so last week, let's just do a little recap in case you weren't here. Zach, can you turn me down just a little bit? That way I can get louder. Thank you. Come on. Matthew 6. We, we find the Lord's Prayer in both Matthew and also in Luke. Now, Matthew 6, 9 through 13 in the New American Standard, it renders it this way. Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We're going to talk about that tonight. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The King James Version of the Lord's Prayer uh, finishes up verse 13 with thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. They're a little bit different because they come from two different streams of Greek manuscripts, and I believe that both of them are important, and so we group them together, I think, to get all of what Jesus intended. Luke 11 reads it this way. And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. So as John also taught his disciples to pray. And so then Jesus said to them, when you pray, pray this way, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven so in earth. Give us by day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, also as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. It's a little bit different than Matthew's rendition because this happened at two different times. We walked through this last week. You can get that on the podcast. Our notes are always on the sermon in a PDF document if we move a little quicker than we would prefer with our textual references. So that's on there for you for your convenience. But we talked a little bit about last week that Luke gives us a different picture than Matthew not because they both had a different view of what happened on that day is that Luke and Matthew happened at two different times in Jesus' ministry. Oftentimes you find repetition in the New Testament because Jesus was teaching the same things over and over and over again because they were so foundational to the Christian experience. Prayer is most certainly one of them, and Jesus wanted to make sure that we understood this prayer because I believe he wanted us to understand these 10 declarations of trust. So last week we talked about how the, the simple phrase, our Father, is a declaration of trust that we're supposed to say together to God, we trust that you always have our best interests at heart, right? Remember that? Our Father. And then in heaven is we trust that he's all-knowing, all-powerful, and ever-present. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, which is a declaration of trust that says we trust, we trust, right? Hallowed be your name that there is no one else in this world like you. He's one of a kind. And then we wrapped up with your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a declaration of trust that we're supposed to make. We trust you to be the ultimate authority in our lives. We, we talked a little bit last week too about how every pronoun in the Lord's prayer is plural. There's not one singular pronoun in the Lord's prayer. It doesn't mean that you can't pray the Lord's prayer singularly. It doesn't mean that you can't use this prayer for yourself. That's not what it means. But what it does mean is the context of your life should be one of community. It means that the context of your life as a devoted follower of Christ should never be being alone. It's why Jesus said when he starts out, our Father in heaven, right? He's trying to say, hey, there should be a community of people that you're so connected to that it feels like a family, and that should be the greater context, not just of your Christian experience. It should most certainly be the context of your prayer life. 
All right, so let's get to Matthew 6.11. You ready? Matthew 6.11. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then we get to verse 11, and Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. Now, many scholars, and I agree, that the best way to understand this line in the Lord's Prayer should be rendered this way. Give us today our bread for the coming day. It's important to remember that in Jesus' day 2,000 years ago, that the majority of people, the typical person, survived daily. They were daily wage earners. The whole concept of getting paid every two weeks or monthly or, or commissions, right? All of this is part of our, our modern economy. That did not exist 2,000 years ago. Even the concept of a middle class economically is a relatively modern concept. For the most of history, there have just been two groups of people, those that have and those that do not have. And the majority of the people throughout history have been the don't-haves. And the only way that they did have was through subsistence living. And, and part of their subsistence living is that if they had to go and find a job, they would, they would get paid at the end of their day. They were daily wage earners. And they needed that money to sustain their families. They needed that money to just purchase the basic necessities of life. This is who made up the majority of Jesus' audiences when he taught. So when he speaks about this idea of daily bread, it resonated with people. The people that were out there understood. Some people were probably there at their own peril because they came to hear Jesus teach instead of working to get the daily wage that they needed just then to feed their family. So this idea of, of trusting God that he's going to provide for you was very real 2,000 years ago. We talk about trusting God with our material possessions. There, there's, a, there's a reality to that, but for most of us, it would probably take quite a long time before lack would result in suffering death. It could have been just a day for people in Jesus' time. There was a reality to the feeling of need that they had, I think, that sometimes escapes us. Listen to Matthew 6, later on, Jesus comes back to this, this idea, so powerful. Matthew 6, 30, 25 to 34. That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food and drink and enough clothes to wear, it's not because they were materialistic, it's because they survived day by day. Isn't life more than food or your body more than clothing? Look, look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns. For your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your, your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So you don't worry about things saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father already knows your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. He's not saying to people, you don't have to work. He's not saying to people, you don't have to try. 
He's not saying to people, you can just live irresponsibly because you have a rich creator and he's just gonna give you what you need. You can just enter into life as this trust fund existence and, and, and you can just hit cruise control for the rest of your day. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, as you work, as you're productive, as you're being responsible, as you're being a good steward of the things that you have, there has to be an underlying declaration of trust in this area of your life, just like there's trust in all the other areas that he's been talking about leading up to this moment in verse 11. You know, Matthew chapter six is one of those chapters that we talk about so often in the Bible that there's such a popular portion of the chapter that it tends to overshadow everything else that's there. We joked not too long ago about how John 3.16 is like that. Many people think that John chapter 3, that John 3.16 must be the last verse in that chapter, but there's still so much more there. When a verse gets overpopularized, right, which is hard to even think of a verse in the Bible that being a negative thing, but the negative impact of a verse being overpopularized is that it overshadows some of the other text that's intended to help us understand the verse that's become popular. Right, so here we get to write the Lord's Prayer, such a powerful string of verses for us, but the rest of Matthew chapter six is intended to help us understand this very prayer that Jesus teaches. So we memorize the prayer. We memorize the prayer growing up in church. We teach our children that prayer. That's a great thing. I'm not saying don't do that, but make sure that we're teaching them the context to understand those very words because that's how Jesus delivered it to us. I believe Jesus uses this phrase daily bread to remind us that yes, we have a responsibility to be productive, to be good stewards, and to act responsibly when it comes to our material life, but also to trust that God promises to always provide for his children. Daily bread, listen to this, daily bread is about the portion that he has allotted for each of us. Bernie Madoff was born on April 29th in 1938, Queens, New York. In 1960, after graduating from Hofstra University with a degree in political science and now married to his high school sweetheart, Ruth, he used $5,000 earned from lifeguarding and installing sprinkler systems and $50,000 borrowed from his in-laws. He founded an investment firm called Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities, LLC. His clients would eventually include celebrities like Steven Spielberg, major banks around the world, many of the world's most savvy investors and major corporations. The success of Madoff's securities was in part due to a willingness to adapt to changing times. The firm was among the earliest to use computer technology for trading, helping to give rise to the National Association of Securities Dealers Automated Quotations. That's a mouthful for the NASDAQ. He helped create the NASDAQ. Madoff later served as NASDAQ chairman for three one-year terms. However, Madoff became famous for a very different reason on December 11th of 2008. The day before the investor informed his sons he planned to give out several million dollars in bonuses earlier than scheduled and they demanded to know where the money was coming from. Madoff then admitted that a branch of his firm was actually an elaborate Ponzi scheme. Madoff's sons reported their father to Federal authorities in the next day, Madoff was arrested and charged with securities fraud. Madoff, listen to these numbers. Madoff reportedly admitted to investigators that he had lost 50 billion, with a B as in Bob, 50 billion of his investors' money. And on March 12th of 2009, he pleaded guilty to 11 counts, of 11 felony counts. Prosecutors said 170 
billion, with a B, dollars moved through the principal Madoff account over the decades. 170 billion! Only about 11 billion has been recovered to use to help compensate the thousands of investors who lost their life savings. During the summer of 2009, a 71-year-old Madoff was sentenced to 150 years in prison. It's an incredible story, isn't it? There's movies out there about his life, and articles that you can read if you're not familiar with it. It's important that we become familiar with it because it is a symptom of the human condition called never enough. One of the most difficult struggles that we have in this life as human beings is that we fall prey to this disease of our humanity called never enough. What he did to people was because he was so infected by never enough, he was willing to cannibalize the future of his own family and his own grandchildren for more. Now some people, not everybody, some people were innocent, but I'm telling you, many of the people that invested money with him, when you really begin to dig around, you realize they just chose not to ask questions. You know why? Because they were infected by this desire of never enough. They didn't want to know too many details because they just like this idea of getting more than they should. Jesus here in the Lord's Prayer is saying something important to you and to me. He's saying, watch out because the human heart is depraved and if you're not careful, it will find itself infected by this thing called never enough. And God has a portion for us, and that portion for us must become enough. And so when Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread, he's challenging us to live our lives with a declaration of trust that says, God, I trust the portion that you have for me. I trust the portion. I believe in something which I've shared it here many times before, something called a material destiny. I believe that every person has a material destiny. Things like reciprocity and sowing and reaping and stewardship and favor, all of those things that we teach here at City Life out of the Bible, we believe in all of those things. Those things are the pathways to your material destiny. How do you know when your ambition and desire for material things has soured? I'm not saying you can't be ambitious because ambition is important in this life. We're raising our children to be ambitious. We want them to have a desire to accomplish great things in this world, to rise, to live to their potential. We're not a family that says you can't enjoy material things, right? We, the monastic movement has already been tried in this world and it failed. We're not, we're not looking for that. God's not threatened by us enjoying material things. It's okay. The question is, has your ambition and your enjoyment for material things, has it gone too far? Has it soured? What do you do when you grab milk out of the refrigerator? Yeah, you don't look at the expiration date. What do you do? Yes, you do. You smell it. If you're an expiration date person, you're only an expiration date person until you drink sour milk for the first time. And then you don't care about the expiration date anymore. You're sniffing because you want to know, right? And then after you sniff, then you look at the expiration date because if it's expired but it still smells good, you still don't drink it, right? Because anybody that's ever had sour milk in your mouth, it's right, oh, It's bad. This morning I was in the kitchen. I was like, something smells 
off in here, right? I have very sensitive ol- olfactory senses, right? If it's just a little bit, I'm, what is that? Vanessa's out for a jog and kids are still asleep and I'm like, I'm like a bloodhound in the kitchen. I'm opening drawers, cabinets. I'm like, where? The refrigerator. What, what, is, what is that smell? So then I come to the sink. And I get down in there and I get about this far from the garbage disposal. I'm like, whoo, right? It's like the, the smelling salt on the, right, on, the, on the sidelines. This weekend's NFL, right? Come on, right? I'm wearing this because it's the only time this season as a Redskins fan that I get to wear this with pride. So I, it's like, this is my one window, baby. I'm wearing it tonight. And it's going back in the closet till next season. Right? And I get close and I'm like, oh, dear God, what, what's in there? It's, so then I'm, I don't know anything about cleaning gar- garbage disposals. You know, I know how to get them unstuck with the Allen wrench, right? The guy stuff, but like how to clean it. And I, so, so sure enough, right? Baking soda, vinegar, boiling water, follow that up with some lemon that's chopped up in the rind. So now you can come over and stick your head close to our garbage disposal. You're like, that smells, that smells nice. <laughs> smells nice. So when God gets close to you, and he gets a whiff of your ambitions, he begins to smell your desire for material things, is that a part of your life that has begun to sour? Because it's not supposed to. And God says, you got to clean that up. You, you don't need to get rid of it. I didn't, we didn't rip the garbage disposal out of our house. Right? God's saying, no, 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 that's a, it's okay for that to be a part of your life, but just keep it clean. Keep it clean. Let me give you five quick ways that you can know if your ambitions and your material things have soured in your life. There's a willingness to compromise your integrity. You're willing to compromise your integrity for more. You don't care about how ambition begins to affect others. How about price gouging that's taking place in Florida? There was an interview this morning with the attorney general for Florida. You know you're old when attorney generals start to look like they're in middle school. Vanessa, we're like, how old is she, right? And then we realize it's not a problem with her age, it's a problem with ours. So, right? Price gouging, right? We, it, you, you, that begins to sour in your life because you don't care how your ambition begins to affect others. Integrity. You don't care how it affects other people. There's no room for God's glory. You know that your ambitions have begun to go too far and you enjoy, begin to enjoy because there's just no more room for God's glory in your life. It means that you begin to take all the credit for everything. God's not threatened by you taking some credit. That's okay. If you work hard and you, you, you hone your skill and you practice and someone gives you a compliment, it's, you don't have, your first step doesn't have to be, well, it was all God because that's really not true. He expects you to work to get good at what he's called you to do. So it's okay to say thank you, thank you. And then say, thank, thank you. I just, I thank God for the opportunity that I have to serve people, right? You, you can be, take some praise, and then give some glory. When there's no more room for God's glory, you're in trouble. Number four, we have an entitled attitude. God owes me something. Because I've sowed, you, you better give. You better show up with your favor that you promised, right? When your attitude begins to deal with God in a sense that he owes you, you've got one foot in the grave, just saying. 
We feel too important to serve other people. Yeah. You get any one of these five things in your life, your ambitions and your enjoyment of material things have begun to sour. Let me, let me just, let me pause here. We're probably not gonna get through this whole message tonight. We'll just, we'll push some of it to next week if we don't get all the way there. The wrap-up that Vanessa did for, for the parable of the prodigal son, so good, right? When she came back, I was like, you better write that sermon because if you don't, I'm gonna, and I'm stealing it. I'm just letting you know right now. I'm giving you a few days to write that out, but then I'm taking it. That idea of God being preoccupied with you, that's powerful. That's for somebody here tonight, right? You better take a hold of that. He's preoccupied with you. You remember what that was like if you're married? If you don't, you should be going to the marriage life group. Just saying, just a little plug there. Right, when you started dating, you were preoccupied. You were distracted at work. You're distracted just driving places. You're just, you're just distracted because you're just thinking about this person you're falling in love with. Just saying, some of you are getting really nervous because you know that I know that you've just started dating, but I'm, I'm not going to do that to you. All right, just saying. All right. I could, but I won't. I could, but I won't. All right. Preoccupied, right? You know that. It's so good, right? The thought of that's how God feels towards you, that's powerful. Powerful. That's how he feels towards you. That story, the parable of the prodigal son, one of the reasons why it's so powerful because it's talking about what we're talking about tonight. This idea, this idea that ambition and desire for material things sours in our lives. You know who had that problem? Not the prodigal son. He had a different problem. The brother who stayed home. That was his problem. That was his problem. You know why that was his problem? Because when the father ran out to meet the son who had come home, and he brings the robe, and he puts the ring on his finger and embraces him, he's being restored to the family. Restored. That ring and that robe and that title and that relationship meant that the father was saying to that son, you're back in. You're back in. The brother, he knows the math. He knows the math. You see, because the way inheritances work in Jesus' day is that the estate was divided up amongst the boys, not the girls, right? You think there's a problem with chauvinism today, and there is. It was even worse 2,000 years. They didn't even get counted in the inheritance. Just the boys. And if there were two sons, the inheritance wasn't divided by two. It was divided by three. Because the oldest was expected to step into the place of leading the family. And there was a financial expense that came along with that responsibility because now you had to help provide for the whole family. So they got an extra portion. Two sons. The youngest comes and says, give me What's mine now, which is another sermon for another time, is that even things that God wants you to have, if you get them too soon, what was supposed to be life-giving can be destructive. He says, give me mine. So you know what the father does is, now, now it's not explained in the story, but you've got to understand the culture of the time to know what's happening. The, the father would have gone and divided everything that he had, not by two, but by three. Because that's what he's entitled to. And he takes all of his third, squanders it, 
There's only two-thirds of the estate left. When he comes home, the ring goes back on his finger. The robe goes back on his shoulders. There's math that's taking place. And the older brother gets it. The two-thirds that's left is now a whole, and it's divided into thirds again. And he's thinking to himself, this stinking brother of mine, he took what belonged to him. Now he's taking what belongs to me. He didn't care that he took what was his and wasted it. But something inside of him now is seething. It's seething. Because now he's taking what he thinks belongs to him. For some of you, you struggle in this place of your material experience in this temporal world because you've developed an attitude of entitlement for material things. And what God is saying to you and what he's saying to me through this one part of the Lord's prayer is, hey, I have a portion for you. And you've got to decide whether or not you trust him enough that he did the math right. And we look at other people over here and it seems like they have a bigger portion. Or we might look at other people over here and it seems like they have a smaller portion. But see, that doesn't bother us. What bothers us is that others have more than we do. And Jesus is saying right here in the middle of this Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. He's looking you in the eye and he's looking me in the eye and he's saying, you have got to come to a place where you realize that God has a material destiny for you. Stewardship and reciprocity and tithing and so many other things that the Bible talks about. This, this is how we get to our material destiny being fulfilled. But our material destiny is a portion that God is the sovereign creator of the universe. He's allotted for each one of us. And he's saying, if you'll just be faithful in life, you're gonna get the portion that you're supposed to have. Stop looking at the portions that other people have and be faithful in your journey to get to your portion. And trust that God always does the math right. Jesus understands that what he's asking of us it takes some time to get there. So he doesn't start there. He starts with our Father. See, he starts by saying to us, Father, we trust that you always have our best interest at heart. We trust that you're all-knowing and all-powerful and ever-present. We trust that there's no one like you. And we trust you to be the ultimate authority in our lives. So now, I can say to you, I trust the portion. I trust the portion you have for me. Stand with me. The band's gonna come back up. So this is, this is what I want to do as we step into this moment of worship. This is what I want us to do. One, if you're here 
and God wanted you to be up here during the worship set, and you got cut up in that conversation in your head and you didn't come, then you come. You come back and say, God, I'm here now. And you have your encounter with him. For, for the rest of us, for the rest of us, this is, this is the question that I, I want us to ask. I want all of us to ask the question, God, is there anything about the ambitions that I have in this life? Is there anything about my material enjoyment, my, my enjoyment of material things? It's, maybe it's not one of those five that I read. But maybe it's something else that's just soured. That you would say to God, God, I want you to tell me if something in my life has soured in some way and show it to me. Father, we, we want the conviction of the Holy Spirit freely flowing in our lives. We don't want to be the one that runs. We don't want to be the one that hides. We don't want to be the one that pretends. We don't want to be the one that covers up. We, we want your Spirit to be able to just freely reveal these things in our life, especially tonight, if there are ambitions that we have, if there's entitlement that we've, that we've succumbed to, if, there are, if there's a desire for material things, God, that, that, that has become out of order, it's soured in our lives, then show that to us and help us to make it right. Father, we want to be a people that, that stand before you and are able to make every single one of these declarations of trust, especially tonight, we want to say to you, we trust the portion. In Jesus' name, come on, let's worship together.